1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Rimorenko, Doctoral Candidate in Neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to David, David George Haskell about the new book, Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. A lyrical exploration of the diverse sounds of our planet, the creative processes that produce these marvels, and the perils that sonic diversity now faces. Sounds wild and broken is an invitation to listen, wonder, belong, and act. Well, David, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you.
0: So, how are you? How was your week?
1: Oh, it was very good. Uh, I'm based in Atlanta, Georgia, in the U.S. and a very hot week and the last of the migrant birds are moving through the birds that have come up from the, from the tropics. So the yellow billed cuckoos were calling from my backyard, which is always a sign that summer is beginning.
0: Oh, wow. Are you a bird watcher?
1: Yes. A bird watcher and a bird listener.
0: Oh, wow. Exciting. Did you, do you have a a diary to uh, document all the species that you've seen uh, over the year?
1: I do. I keep, I keep a list for our house for what, we, what we've seen right, right here, just from, the, from our garden. And then I participate in eBird, which is a, a, a global project that gathers bird sighting information from all over. Uh, so, um, But, you know, I also, most days I just go out and enjoy the birds and I'm not trying to gather data or, or document it.
0: Oh, excellent. <laughs> all right, so can you tell us, what do you do?
1: So I am a writer. I've written several books about uh, the community of life and uh, particularly asking how people and the rest of life's community fit together, focusing on forests and sounds and things. I'm also a professor at the University of the South, which is a liberal arts college in Tennessee, where I've worked with undergraduate students for the last 25 years teaching both ecology and evolution, but also environmental and scientific writing.
0: And how did you get interested in studying it?
1: Well, my PhD, uh, which was at at Cornell back in the 1990s, I studied the sounds that little baby birds make when the parents bring them food. And these, these begging calls turn out to differ quite strongly between species. So some species have high pitch sounds, some low pitch sounds. So I made sound recordings of, of these animal sounds and then analyzed them in, in the lab to understand how they might have evolved, how each sound is adapted to place. So, so my study of of sounds started on early in my in my work, in my in my PhD. But then when I started teaching undergraduate students and introducing them to the sounds of the living world around us, in particular, the sounds of birds. Then my interest in the various subtleties and nuances of what we can learn by careful listening really expanded. So in fact, as the researcher, I really got started in, in my studies of the ecology and the evolution of sound but it was my role as a teacher that really helped me think more broadly about that because of course especially undergraduates aren't satisfied with just a very narrow approach that they're, they're interested in how everything fits together how sounds can inform us both about the present moment and the past and so that was my uh, uh, that was my work with them
0: it sounds like you get inspiration from your students
1: I do get inspired. Hopefully, they get a little bit of inspiration from me occasionally. But yes, I get inspired by them, uh, by their creativity, by the freshness of the approach, the freshness of the questions that they bring, and the uh, and the energy that they bring to to, to exploring the world. And so, I, so I find, of course, teaching is also a, a tiring activity. But I do I do get inspiration and and re- a renewed sense of energy from from interacting with young people.
0: And alongside your career journey, did you have uh, very inspiring mentors?
1: I did. I, I had a lot of great teachers both in in school and then in college uh, at, in my PhD program, and I also had non-human mentors as well. And I, I live in the United States, but I I grew up in France and in, in in and around Paris. I was born in London, and so my childhood and my my youth were spent on a different continent. So when I arrived here in North America as an immigrant back in my early twenties, I made a practice of going outside and trying to listen to the birds in particular, to try and attune my ear to this new continent, to try and understand the the dynamics of the place partly through my ears. And so, so the birds, in a way were mentors, of course, not in the same way that we, a human mentor is they weren't intending, I don't think to teach me things, but certainly I learned the rhythms of the seasons and the, the different variations between habitats and even the variations within a habitat by paying attention to these non-human beings. And so I do think of them as my teachers and about uh, I don't know, about 15 years ago, I, I started a new practice, which is going to one little patch of forest in Tennessee, near where I, where I used to live, and sitting with this little area, this one square meter forest, and just paying attention. And that little patch of forest that I return to again and again without any particularly well-defined questions, but with just a, a, an openness of my senses that particular patch of forest taught me so much, it taught me to observe, and, it, and and through the creatures that I saw there, salamanders and birds and wildflowers and the, and the insects flying past and the ants crawling around on the vegetation interacting with one another, each one of those stimulated my curiosity and and, and in fact sent me to back to the library, to the scientific literature, to see if I could learn more about them. So I think, of course, and I think of human teachers with great gratitude, but I also think of my teachers and mentors in the non-human world as well.
0: And as a human teacher, what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers?
1: I would say uh, find your enthusiasm and, and follow it in my own path, that enthusiasm has often involved turning on my senses to things that often other people aren't paying attention to. So for example, the aromas of trees, how many different ways can we find that we are connected to trees just in our kitchen, right? So open the spice jar of of cinnamon or of nutmeg and you're connected to trees. You're also connected to a long history of colonialism and trade and war. Go step outside and smell smell the air, what are you smelling in the air? Partly, you're smelling the exhalations of trees. And so through paying repeated attention to the aromas of trees or the sounds of birds, I've tried to, to, to find lines of questioning that I have found very stimulating and, and fruitful. Of course, that's not a path that will work for everyone, but I do think in our education, we tend to underestimate the value of the human senses, we except we for sight, We're a very visual species. We communicate with graphs and statistics all the time, but very seldom do we say, for example, put our hands into the soil and feel the soil's texture. And from that texture and the difference between that texture and the texture of some other soil develop a series of questions and understandings about the nature of the soil and our relationship with the soil.
0: Excellent, love it. So your latest book is Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. So can you tell us, how did you come to writing it?
1: Well, in fact, trees were the my stimulus for, for writing this book about sound because the book that I wrote before this one, uh, which a book called S- The Songs of Trees, I went to about a dozen different trees around the world repeatedly dozens and dozens of times, to sit and listen to the trees. So it's a book about listening to trees, to the the ways that tree sounds reveal trees' architecture, reveal the cultural significance of trees, reveal the ecological relationships of trees. And then in, in thinking about the sounds of trees, my imagination was then drawn down into the ground, into the dust of our ancestors, which is what the soil and the rocks are, and ask, I asked myself, where, where did this magnificent sonic diversity of the world that we live in today, where did that come from? So that set me on the path to this next book, Sounds Wild and Broken, which is a book about the world being full of sound of all different sorts of communicative voices, from the birds to the insects to humans to fish to whales to shrimp, all, all these different voices around the world. Uh, that has a history. The world didn't always sound the way it did. And that world also has a future. How will the world sound in a hundred years or a thousand years? We're in a time of rapid sonic change and and, and loss. And so the book is focused on, uh, first of all, a celebration of the the acoustic diversity of the world and then asking questions about where that diversity came from and where it is going.
0: Oh, these are absolutely grand questions. So let's delve into Thank your you. book and we can start with slightly something slightly easier. So can you tell us how and why is sound important in nature?
1: Yes, yeah, so sound is the great connector. So when I speak to another person, or when as we're doing now, of course, we're speaking in sound waves, but also some electronics in between us as well. Or when I hear a bird sing or a frog call from a swamp. I'm connected across time and space to that other individual almost by telepathy. It's almost an instantaneous connection and sound works in the the night or in a dark turbid ocean or in a dense forest where, where you can't see more than a few meters or maybe even just a few centimeters in front of your face, but sound will connect you. So sound is extraordinarily important for many species because it connects individual organisms. And we now know that life is made from interconnection. When any organism is separated from the connections with others, it withers and dies. So sound is is a connector. And because sound connects organisms one to another, sound is also a great life giver, a source of life in the present moment. But also in the future, sound is a generative force. It opens the powers of evolutionary creativity. So sound is important because it connects beings in ways that are not possible through other senses.
0: But what kinds of sounds are there in nature?
1: Yeah, I, I love that question because it, it's it's such, a, <laughs> it's such a simple question at one level and it's very deep at, at another. Uh, so one way to think about the different kinds of sounds is to think about the medium through which they flow. So we humans are used to thinking about sound in air. And of course, those are little pressure waves that flow through the air from one individual to another that carry sound in that way. But sound also carries through water. And many fish and invertebrates and marine mammals communicate using sound that flows through the water. In water, sound flows four or five times faster than it does in air. Uh, it also can travel much further depending on what kind of water in, uh where you are in the water column. For example, in the oceans, there is a, an acoustic lens deep down in the ocean where sound waves, because of differences in salinity and pressure and temperature, sound waves bend back into this lens. So, if a whale makes a sound into this sound lens, which is a, a layer of water at a particular depth in the ocean, about a kilometer down, that sound will, will transfer all the way across the ocean, potentially to to the other side, hundreds of hundreds of kilometers away. So, there is also sound that flows through. Solids. Uh, and if you put your ear to the trunk of a tree, or even put your hand on a pavement on the side of a busy road, be careful you don't get your hand run over, but you'll feel the sound waves coming through those solids. And those sound waves travel dozens or hundreds of times faster than they do in air. And and this is a fairly recent discovery by entomologists, is that many, many insects use sound waves in solid material like wood to communicate one with another. They make little songs with their legs, with their abdomens, and send the songs down through their legs into the wood on which they stand or onto a leaf of a tree or a blade of grass. And then those vibrations travel not through the air, but through the solid material into the legs of other insects that then have the equivalent of ears in their legs that can detect those different sounds. And so sound can travel through all these different mediums. And of course it can be at different frequencies. So very high pitched or low pitched different amplitudes. And then in the, before earth formed, there were other forms of sound waves in the early universe that flowed through the hot plasma that existed in the early universe, even before atoms were formed. And so sound waves, which are pressure waves throwing through through matter, have existed right from the early days of the universe. On planet Earth, they take three main forms, in the air, the water, and in solid matter. So you
0: already touched up on this a little bit. Um, I was wondering what kind of functions can sounds have, or can they also be some kind of a byproduct?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because most sounds that animals make or that indeed plants or, or rocks or clouds make, most of those sounds are not communicative. They're not intended to convey a signal with information embedded in it the way my voice is doing now. Or the way the song of a bird does. And so when a fish chews on some food in the water or an animal moves through some grass or climbs on the tree, it is releasing little sound waves that reveal its presence. And making that kind of sound can be very dangerous because most animals have pretty well-developed hearing. And so producing a sound even unintentionally, can lead a predator to you and it can be a dangerous thing. So this may be why it took hundreds of millions of years for communicative sound to first evolve on planet Earth. The first animals that evolved in the oceans, as far as we know, did not sing or call or make any kind of communicative sound. They made little sounds with their, with their, uh, with their flippers and their tails by moving through the water, when jaws and mandibles evolved, those made sounds, of course, as they were crunching on their food. But those were not communicative sounds. So it wasn't until about 250 million years ago, maybe 300 million years ago, that the first communicative sounds evolved on, on the planet. Uh, and those sounds, by communicative, I mean something, a sound that, whose evolutionary intent is to carry some information from one individual to another. So for example when a bird is singing it's communicating to rivals and to its mates. When a young bird calls to its parents it's signaling from os- signaling its hunger, its need from the offspring to the parent. When an insect uh, is threatened by a predator and makes a loud, sharp little cry. That cry is is a startle response that alarms the predator, and and buys some safety for the insect. So there are all sorts of functions that that these uh, these sounds can make we think of them the ones the loudest ones of course are the communicative sounds of, of advertisement in the breeding season uh, whether it's howler monkeys in the rainforest or whales singing in the ocean or birds singing in a, in a forest but there are also lots of other quieter communicative sound i mentioned those between parents and offspring but for social animals Uh, for example, monkeys that, that live in social groups, or birds that flock together, or even fish that move together in schools, sometimes sounds can be ways in which the flock or the school, the social group stays in touch and communicates information about location and about predators, one organism to another. And then in humans, of course, we have Vastly elaborated sound making through our music and our language, where the communicative intent is, of course, to convey information, but also to convey important social cues about emotion and about stories and narrative. And so, when you're listening to instrumental music, of course, there are no words, but still, there is information being conveyed there that is often not so much about facts, but information about emotions and, and feelings and context and, and, and social connection. So we understand that fairly well for humans because we have a lived experience of those forms of communication. And the same may be true for other animals. When birds are singing, they're influencing one another's emotional state as well as conveying sort of factual information about where the bird is located or how healthy the bird is.
0: So staying a bit in this um, terrestrial environment and the sound life landscape. So you already said about insects that they may have ears on their legs. So so how does sound impact their lives?
1: Yeah, so one of the marvelous things about sound is the diversity of ways of hearing. So we, of course, hear with our inner ears. Well, we can also hear... Loud sounds on the skin of our body, but for for much quieter sounds, we rely on our ears, little coils of hairs that are held within the cochlea inside our heads. That's what picks up the vibration ultimately. In insects, those little hairs are located sometimes in the joints of the legs or at the base of the antennae. Or little drum like structures in the legs or on the thorax. In other species, like fish, th- th- hairs that are sensitive to, to sound pressure waves are located on the skin and in the lateral line system, which are a little series of little canals that run through the skin, as well as in the inner ear. Um, in some mammals, for example, in the elephants, the, the feet are the hearing organ. So elephants pick up low pressure waves, very deep sounds that are too low for human ears to hear, but they pick them up through vibration sensors actually located in their feet, as well as through bone conduction of those sound waves up into the elephant's body and eventually up into its ears. So there is a marvelous range of diversity in sensitivity to sound. For the insects, sound is... Uh, is sometimes communicative. For example, grasshoppers and crickets and katydids and bush crickets all sing to attract mates. But sound is also a great way of finding prey if you are a predatory insect. So a lot of predatory and parasitic insects listen for the sounds of their prey. Often these are little ultrasonic sounds. They're very high pitched to home in on the exact location of the prey item so, so they can find it. So sound has a has a role both in, in social dynamics within a species, but it also mediates things like, uh, like predation and parasitism between species. There are some flies called tachinid flies that have paired hearing organs just underneath, uh, underneath the, their thorax. And they use these to find singing bush crickets. And when they find them, the female fly flies directly to the bush cricket and then lands next to it and then dumps her offspring, which are a bunch of little fly maggots onto the cricket. And then the cricket is then parasitized. So it's a a rather terrible death for the cricket, but a very sophisticated sound detecting device on the, on the tachinid fly.
0: This definitely puts a new twist on the same bug's ears.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Not sure how
0: cute it is. Yeah. So how much do we know
1: about sound in the aquatic environments? Yeah, the aquatic environment until recently was thought to be mostly silent. I mean, Jacques Cousteau, back in the 1950s, uh, his very famous early documentary about the oceans was called Le Monde du Silence, the, the world of, of silence. And partly we thought it was silent because nobody had had the tech. But with the advent of hydrophones, which are microphones that are specialized for listening under the water. We've learned that not only creatures like whales that are probably the most famous uh, aquatic singers, uh, but shrimp and many different species of fish during the mating season produce all kinds of trilling sounds and thumping percussive sounds. The oceans and indeed some freshwater areas are alive with sounds really extraordinary diversity of of communication happening below the waves. It's also a place where there's there's a lot of noise pollution caused by humans. So it's a place of crisis as well as a place of wonder. Uh, In the freshwater realm, even less is known. uh, David Rothenberg, who's a a musician, a a philosopher, also has made a number of contributions to biology has been lowering hydrophones into freshwater habitats here in North America and hearing all sorts of sounds that nobody really knows which insect is producing this sound or which frog is producing the sound. So it really is a frontier that is still being explored in the oceans. We know more than we do about uh, freshwater uh, and in the oceans, of course, for, particularly for marine mammals and for many fish. Uh, song is the main way in which social groups are maintained and, and mates communicate with one another.
0: Yeah. And uh, this has only recently been uh, really coming forward, especially something like soundscape of the coral reefs, right? Mm-hmm. So you can estimate the health of the coral reef uh, mm-hmm. depending on how busy it is.
1: Yes. And this is true for lots of different ecosystems and, and, instead of listening, say, for an individual species like a blue whale or a common blackbird singing outside, instead, this this approach involves listening to the entire collection of voices, the entire soundscape that we hear in any one region, and then either appreciating that in an aesthetic way or more commonly analyzing, statistically analyzing, the entirety of that soundscape to look for patterns. And one of the patterns that we find is that degraded ecosystems tend to have impoverished and simplified soundscapes. A coral reef, for example, that has experienced bleaching uh, where many of the organisms on the reef have died, sounds much less rich, much lower diversity of different voices In that reef, and those voices are the voices of shrimp and of fish, uh, all hundreds of different species, all singing and calling at once. But in an impoverished reef, we don't hear nearly that same, same richness. The same is true, for example, in forests in the terrestrial realm and conservation biologists and land managers now use the richness of forest soundscapes to judge how healthy the forest is and to judge whether their management practices are appropriate to that particular place.
0: And you already touched up on this, uh, that uh, plants uh, make sounds like forests. Now, what about the fungi? And what about the sounds that can be coming from within the plants rather than for, say, branch sort of cracking? Yes,
1: yeah, so sounds coming from from non human uh, and well, non-animal beings are are fascinating because of course, plants don't have a nervous system in the same way that we do, but they are of course, organisms that are sensing their environment, responding to the environment, making decisions about their growth, about their interactions with other organisms and listening to to plants can reveal some of these dynamics at the most easy way is to listen to the sound of rain and wind in different species of trees because every species of tree has its own voice in the wind. A pine tree sounds very different from a maple tree. And a maple is different from an oak. And the oak in the winter is different from that in the summertime. And so by tuning our ears into this, we can, we can learn something about the architecture of plants and, and why plants grow the way they do and, and, and learn more about, about ecosystems in that way. If we use technology, for example, measuring the ultrasonic sounds that come from inside of tree, when the tree is drying out, when there's a drought, the water shortage, many of the little water vessels within the tree break, make cracking sounds. And so an an ultrasonic microphone can pick those things up and tell you, is this tree in... Uh, is it healthy or is it, is it suffering right now through, through loss of water? Uh, so the ultrasound reveals things about the, about the state of the tree. And then also just a regular microphone will reveal the sounds of insects inside the tree. Carpenter bees, carpenter ants, all sorts of uh, chewing beetles underneath the bark of trees make little sounds and so we can think of this as the soundscape of the interior of the tree has all sorts of different dimensions and and very few people listen to these so there's a lot we don't know about these interior soundscapes within trees Uh, but they are fascinating places to 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 uh, listen to the sounds of fungi are even less well known fungi of course grow um generally don't grow very tall and so they don't interact with the wind as much a lot of their dynamics are happening below the ground and the connections between those fungi, as far as we know, mostly chemical and also electrical. So uh, fungi are producing all sorts of electrical signals uh, that seem to be arranged in fairly regular patterns. And so there's a there's another world of communication that the fungi are participating in that to our knowledge is, is not acoustic. And I, I should say that's there's a big caveat on that because very few people have done any experiments to explore this. We know that tree roots are sensitive to sound. They'll grow to, to, um, towards the sounds of running water. Uh, they, certain forms of sound wave are stimulating to them. Whether that is true for fungi or not, we, we, we don't know. So anyone with a, a loudspeaker and some uh, colonies of fungi in the lab could easily set up an experiment to, to investigate that question.
0: So what sounds are made by the inanimate matter or say on, on our planet or beyond?
1: Yeah, that, that, the sounds that were the that most obvious there, of course, are the sounds of wind and rain, uh, the, the much rarer sounds of geologic, geologic tremors underground. I remember being in a big earthquake once and it sounded like a big train was coming past as the, uh, as the waves of the earthquake moved across us, you could hear the earthquake coming. Uh, like a, like an enormous freight train, a roaring past. Um, so, of course, that is, that is not a very common experience, the more everyday experiences of the sound of of fluids, particularly air and water in motion. And then I mentioned earlier the early cosmos, and that's another form of sound wave that is still with us. So the early cosmos was... The universe was very, very small compared to what it is now and much, much hotter. It was so small and so condensed and packed tight that atoms couldn't exist. Atoms were, in in a sense, disintegrated into their component parts, electrons and protons. and, And it was so dense that light was trapped inside this roiling furnace. And so you can think of this as a hot soup of protons and within that hot soup, there were pressure waves that flowed from one place to another. So a wave from one part to another that, so sound was flowing even in the, in this early pressurized universe. And then as the universe expanded, it cooled and those waves were frozen in time because the The peaks of the waves, the places where the protons were pressed together, those became the seeds for galaxies and stars. And to this day, when astronomers measure the distance between galaxies in the night sky, they find that they are regularly arranged. They're, they're, They're about 500 million light years apart, an enormous distance, of course rather than 300 million light years or 700 million light years. No, there's a regularity and that regularity Mm. is the wave mark left over from sound in the early cosmos. So when we look at the stars, we are in, in a very distant sense, looking at sound at the product of sound. And so these, uh, this you know inanimate matter on earth actually stretches way back beyond the story of earth into the the story of the universe itself where sound has been a creative force ever since uh, the very early days
0: oh wow <laughs> so did you hear did you listen to the recording of the wind on mars recently
1: yes that yeah it was a fascinating to to hear the uh and, the, and the, there are other s- s- recordings of of pressure waves from the, uh, from the cosmos. And it, yeah, it's interesting to think of sound on other planets, uh, of course, takes a very different form because, uh, you don't have a, a nice dense atmosphere the way we do uh, here on earth. But, uh, yeah, sound is, is a sort of universal quality in, in the universe. And in fact, and you know, this is not my field. And so I can't say much about this, but, uh, physicists tell me that there are also sound waves, that flow through the space-time continuum. So you think about that four-dimensional grid of of space and time. There are pressure waves that flow through that as well that have been um, uh, determined through theory, and people are trying to to now measure these experimentally. And so sound seems to be quite a universal property of of a variety of different uh, substances and ways of arranging energy in the universe.
0: And now coming to us humans, so uh, what roles did sound play for our early ancestors?
1: Yeah, I, you know, and I, th- <laughs> I think of our ancestors at multiple time periods. So, you know, the, some bacteria, uh, two, three billion years ago, those were our ancestors. And for, for those bacteria, sound was important to them because it, it allowed them to sense their environments. So all bacteria have little sensors on their cell surface that can pick up, uh, pick up pressure waves. And and there have been a very small number of experiments that have shown that bacteria are sensitive to that sound and in fact can be stimulated by the sound of other bacteria growing. I mean, it literally is just a handful of experiments that have that have assessed that, particular quality of bacteria. But as far as we know, for those very, very ancient ancestors, the bacteria sound was not communicative. There's no known bacteria that communicates from one cell to another using sound. Most bacterial communication happens through chemical means, maybe through Mm. some electrical means as well, Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. It's just, we haven't found that yet. The same is true for single celled organisms. And it wasn't until much later in evolution uh, when when, uh, the first fish were in the oceans and then some of those fish came onto land and started making sound through the top of their larynx that we have the sound making that we are now familiar with us. Now, when I'm speaking, I'm taking air from my lungs and passing it through these vocal folds in my throat that are essentially a very sophisticated modification of the valve at the top of the windpipe of the very first terrestrial vertebrate animals. And so when we speak, we are, uh, we're using the legacy of these ancient fish-like creatures. More recently though, and this is whether we do know more about this sound for early human ancestors, was enormously important in two ways, first of, in terms of language and then music. And of course, sound doesn't fossilize, and so we have to make indirect inferences. But the genes that are involved in producing uh, the, uh, the neural structures that are required for human language, human speech, seem to have evolved maybe about half a million years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, human language may also have been present in other close relatives, like the Denisovans and the Neanderthals. Those those species uh, certainly had the vocal apparatus that that could have allowed them to form some form of uh, vocal speech and communication. Uh, so, so of course, language is human language is one of the great innovations that connected us into these highly social. Creatures with amazing things like social memory and culture. But then music as well is this extraordinary component of what it means to be a human. And again, we don't know who was the first human being that was singing. But we do have a pretty good idea about when the first musical instruments appeared. And these were instruments that were made about 40,000 years ago uh, in the caves of what is now southern germany uh, and archaeologists have now excavated parts of these caves and found flutes made from the wing bones of vultures and flutes made from carved ivory taken from the tusk of mammoths and so these people who were living in caves in what is now southern europe 40,000 years ago were in living in the ice age very challenging time But they chose to use their technologies, which at the time were very sophisticated stone tools, they used their technologies to make art, to make musical art, to to connect with one another through music. And these people were also making three-dimensional sculptures, because these caves where the first flutes were discovered are also the same places where the first figurative art in the world is known from. For example, really beautiful three-dimensional carvings of human figurines or of the different animals that were present uh, during the time that the people lived there lived there in the, in the Paleozoic. Excuse me, in the Paleolithic, uh, forty thousand years ago. The Paleozoic is a whole other thing; that was much, much older time period. So, for our ancestors, language, of course, very important, but so too was music, and it seemed that. Minimally, at least 40,000 years ago, some people were making instrumental music to connect one with one another in a way that, um, that we, can, we can imagine and understand today.
0: And how did our soundscape evolve throughout ages to what we have now?
1: Yeah, the, you know, the soundscape, of course, of, of the earth has evolved uh, from being mostly silent when the first forests arose on this planet. There were no singing birds there were no singing insects. It took about hundred million years for singing insects to evolve. So on land, the first singing creatures were insects uh, that ruled for, you know, 100 to 200 million years, and then some frogs and reptiles, mammals, birds, and much more recent additions to soundscapes. Uh, in, in the oceans, the story is a story of, a, of fish. Some fish were probably making some sounds 300 million years ago. And then crustaceans like shrimp um, and spiny lobsters probably joined 150 million years or so ago. And then 100 million years ago, there was an explosion of sound making in the the oceans where a lot of sound making groups of fish evolved. But thinking back onto the land again, the most dramatic changes in the soundscape of, of the earth are actually underway right now. So until about 200 years ago, there there weren't any noisy uh, industrial machines of the kind that we have that dominate our lives now, airplanes and cars and factories and things. And we make so much sound of that kind that it's actually suppressing the ability of many non-human animals to communicate one with another. Uh, Mm. So so there's a real challenge there in um, changing soundscapes as a result of human activities. And, and you know, cities are one place in which we humans experience this the most acutely. But I think in the oceans, we have the biggest problem because we are pumping phenomenal amounts of sound into the ocean through oil exploration and shipping and sonar. These are things that are soaking the ocean in extraordinary amounts of of human generated noise to the extent where it's driving creatures, it's physiologically harming some creatures, it's driving others to distraction, and it is ecologically breaking the connections that many ocean species need in order to, to survive and thrive. So, lots of very recent changes in, in, in the world soundscapes because of, of human actions.
0: Now, we had this really interesting moment during a COVID 19 pandemic where the shipping was basically toned down and we had much less noise in the ocean. So, what did we mm-hmm. learn from that time?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, what, what we're still actually um, figuring, there are papers being published almost every month on this, but in general, what happens when you shut off those sources of noise, and this is true in the ocean, but also on land, for example, birds singing in a city have to deal with a lot of urban, urban noise there in general, the stress level of the animals goes down. And this was, we knew this even before COVID, for example, With the 9-11 attacks uh, in in New York and other places in the US, they shut down shipping and air traffic. And at the same time, people were studying the stress level, stress hormones in whales. And they found that as soon as things went quiet, the stress levels inside those whales went, went way down. And they know that because they're measuring the hormones that they collect from whale feces. Uh, People drive around in boats chasing down whale feces, uh, using sniffer dogs on the bow of the boat to find these feces. So it's an interesting way of doing science. Uh, So the stress levels go down, but also, uh, and this is better known in birds, the form of the song seems to change. So birds in cities, for example, tend to sing louder and at higher pitches than those away from the city because there's too much noise. Uh, They have to work their way around the masking noise of the city. When things go quiet, for example, during COVID, uh, there was a study in, in San Francisco that found that the sparrows in San Francisco changed their songs during the COVID lockdown because there wasn't much traffic noise. The traffic noise dropped to about the same level that it had been in the 1950s and the birds reverted to songs that were like those from the 1950s, rather than those from the 2020s. And of course, <laughs> now as sound and noise pollution re-emerges on this planet, as we move into the next stage of the pandemic, where we're not in lockdown the whole time, non-human animals again have to adapt to that increasing level of noise. The other thing that happened during the pandemic though, is that people became more aware of sounds because at least non-essential workers for many people were confined at home and for some people for the first time they're actually aware of the singing birds and other singing animals around them so it was a time of, of deeper listening for humans as well as uh, of changed songs for other species
0: and for humans what kind of implications for our health uh, does this noise pollution uh, bring
1: yeah that's that's you know, we think of noise as just maybe an inconvenience or an annoyance. And yet noise pollution actually has a very severe burden on human health, and even longevity. And this has been best studied in the in the European Union, where there's been a a long term study of, of noise and its effects on health. And of all the environmental pollutants, Noise pollution is number two in terms of creating uh, suffering in in people. It is estimated that an extra 40,000 new cases of heart disease develop in Europe every year as a result of noise pollution. Why is that? It's because noise literally inflames the body from within. It prevents us from sleeping properly, from healing properly, from getting the right amount of rest. Noise also fragments our minds and our attentions. So children don't learn as well in noisy environments. And so noise pollution is, yeah, occasionally it is merely an inconvenience. But for many people, it's actually a burden that causes sickness and even death. The Thousands of deaths every year can be attributed to, to noise pollution if you do the statistical analyses on uh, on noise pollution worldwide so noise pollution is a is a public health problem it is also an environmental injustice problem within the human community because not all communities have the same level of noise pollution here in the us there has been a pattern for decades of building busy roads and noisy industrial plants in places that are dominated by minority communities, say Black, Hispanic communities, rather than putting them in the white communities or the more wealthy communities. And there are patterns similar to that in other countries in other parts of the world, some based on race, often based on social class. And so we all know, of course, that if, if you're in a wealthy neighborhood, it will generally be quite quiet and peaceful. There will be birds singing. It will sound like being outside in the countryside. Whereas if you are in a more working class neighborhood, the the burden of noise pollution will be much higher. And so as a matter of city planning and a matter of planning, say, where busy roads are going to be located. There is also a question of justice. It's like who has to bear the burden of noise pollution rather than uh, uh, rather than getting to live in a place where things are quieter? So noise pollution for humans is a public health problem. It's also an environmental justice problem.
0: And what are the ways that we can address some of these issues, also taking into account the noise that uh, disturbs the natural world.
1: Yeah, so I mean, for people, it's, it's about uh, bringing noise into urban planning, which in, at least in, in some countries is, is now happening. So there's more thoughtfulness about how we can uh, manage noise. There are technological solutions, for example, airplanes now are much, much quieter than they used to be a few decades ago. Because airplane engines are quieter, they burn fuel more efficiently than they did, certainly back in the 1970s, for example. The problem, though, is that each individual airplane is much quieter, but there are many, many more airplanes flying now. And so <laughs> the technological solution has to also be connected to a social solution, is that airplane noise, for example, around airports... Is not just about the technology of engines. It's about how many airplanes are coming in and out of a particular airport every hour. When I lived in New York City, for example, LaGuardia Airport, in, it, on some days an airplane would pass over our apartment every ninety seconds through the day. So that's a lot of traffic coming in. <laughs> so you really, uh, you know, that that kind of level of noise pollution really, really did affect uh, affect the neighborhood. For non-human creatures in the oceans, we face a similar uh, a similar set of solutions. There are technological solutions. For example, ships can be engineered to be quieter, and that also makes the engines and the boat itself just a lot more efficient uh, through modifications in propeller design and through maintenance of the of these ocean-going vessels. Uh, sounds can be reduced. If ships slow down a little bit when they are in places with a lot of marine mammals, say around busy seaport towns, by slowing down the amount of sound that they produce is also reduced. And yet the problem with shipping is not just the technology of the engine. It is that we are a globalized society where we ship materials around the world all the time and we're doing this more and more and more and so the amount of shipping noise in the ocean has been going up decade by decade and so by relocalizing our economies and not involved in doing so much international trade we can reduce the amount of noise in the oceans whether humans will choose to do that or not I don't know. It seems doubtful to me in in the present motion that we're moving away from that kind of globalized economy. And the creatures that will pay the price for that are many of these ocean creatures that have to listen to this sound. The other thing that's happening in the ocean is when we look for buried oil in the ocean, the way that happens is people do seismic exploration where ships will tow arrays of air guns behind them these air guns go off about every 10 seconds for weeks on end sending really loud pulses of sound out into the ocean that pulse of sound actually goes deep down into the ocean sediments the sound waves are reflected back up and from those reflections geologists can map where the oil is located So we're using sound to figure out where the buried oil treasure is. And this is happening in every ocean basin all around the world. The problem is those sounds are so loud that they kill invertebrate organisms that are close to them. They drive away marine mammals because the noise is intolerable. And they can also completely disrupt the mating behavior and the social lives of of many fish. So the solution to that problem is using different technologies for discovering oil, and some of those technologies do exist, and also weaning ourselves off of oil that is buried under the ocean. So the transition, the decarbonization of the economy, the transition away from an oil-based economy to one that is based on other forms of energy, like sunlight and wind, will have a knock-on benefit of re- massively reducing noise pollution in the oceans.
0: And what discoveries in your research for your book "Sounds Super Wild and Broken" surprised you the most?
1: Um, so, well, a couple of things, you know, at different ends of the of the uh, time spectrum. One, I was absolutely shocked to discover. How long it took communicative voices to emerge on this planet. So, uh, I already mentioned when the first forests evolved, there were no singing insects. There were no singing birds. When the first reefs arose in the in the oceans, there were no singing fish or shrimp or anything like that. And so for hundreds of millions of years, this planet existed in communicative silence. That's such a huge contrast to today where we go outside and we hear the voices of other people. We hear the voices of other species. If you go out into an ecosystem with lots of other species, for example, a, a rainforest, it's almost deafening how loud it is with a number of other species calling. So that was a very shocking contrast to me from the early days of, the, of evolution on planet Earth to the present moment. The other thing that really I found really beautiful and very moving was when I visited the caves in Southern Germany, where these early first musical instruments had been discovered. And those caves have this beautiful reverberance within them, really extraordinary acoustic experience. And of course, a flute sounds really beautiful in a very reverberant space. And to this day, if you pull up on, you buy a CD or go to YouTube and listen to say new age flutes, they will add reverberation to make it sound like they're in a cave. So right from the beginning of instrumental music on this planet, the instruments were in relationship to the physical space in which they were found. And the same is true today. If you go to a 19th century concert hall for classical music, for example, the concert hall matches beautifully the sound and the volume of the instruments on the stage. Why is that? It's because when large concert halls were built, the instruments changed. They were redesigned to become louder and to have a more stable tone to fill these large new concert halls in the the 19th and in the 18th centuries, particularly in Western Europe. And then these days, we listen to music on our earbuds. And so singing voice is right in our ear. And so if you listen to a lot of sung music now, popular music that's being pu- published and created today, a lot of it, the person's, the singer's voice is right next to the microphone. It's like they're whispering in our ear. So Billy Eilish is a great example of this. And so even with earbuds, there's a coevolution between the physical space in which sound is made, and then the form of music and the form of instrumentation that goes along with that music. And so, so visiting those caves, the uh, paleolithic caves in Southern Germany gave me a new experience of going to hear music now in, in the present day. And so when I'm listening to a concert now, whether it's uh, you know, folk concert or, or rock or, or classical I'm transported back to the early days of of music, the early days of music evolution and on this planet. So, th- so that part of the research for the book really changed my experience of listening to music.
0: Oh, wow! That really gives another dimension, basically.
1: It does, and it, you know, it's a, a dimension of deeper time, and that's the thing that's fascinated me all along: is the deep time of the 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 stories that are behind the sound. So every sound of course is marvelous as it is now in the present day, but every sound also has a story, a history behind it. And those are the the stories and the histories that I try to relate in the book Sounds Wild and Broken.
0: Are there any sounds that you would like to hear? For example, something maybe from the past or something extraterrestrial?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would love to be transported back to the early days, like the Mesozoic, uh, maybe in the Jurassic, to hear the first, some of the first singing insects, and to understand, you know, what did the first birds and, and turtles and frogs really sound like? So in a way, it's a time travel back to, uh, back to an earlier form of soundscape. The other thing I would really like to hear, and this is something I haven't heard in in a while now, because of because of covid and and restrictions on travel is the sounds of a tropical forest the tropical forests of our world today are the the places with most magnificent soundscapes anywhere on the planet they're severely threatened by over harvesting and destruction and yet the tropical forests that remain in the amazon in central africa and southeast asia these are sonic marvels and the few times that i've been lucky enough to experience this in my life has been a very deep experience for me so at some point in the future i would like to revisit those soundscapes and be immersed in the glories of a singing rainforest once again
0: i can imagine you're a playlist on spotify (laughs) (laughs) well this has been a truly fascinating discussion so can you Thank tell you. us what are you currently working on and what will be your next
1: project? Yeah, so you know what I'm working on now is is sharing little vignettes of sound on social media, you know, doing things associated with promoting the book, which is part of, of being a writer, of course, is, is getting the story out. But I'm also uh, working on some some new writing projects, thinking about how people and plants. Uh, have co-evolved with one another, how how our stories are wrapped up with the stories of, of our green cousins. So a, a return to the forest, as, as it were.
0: And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
1: The book is easy to find um, on Google. Just Google Sounds Wild and Broken, and you can pick it up in your local bookstore. Uh, there are translations coming in, in a number of, of languages, both in, in Asia and in in Western Europe, uh, and it, it's out in, in several English editions. And then my work, including some links to some soundscapes and sonic reconstructions that I've made, you can find at dghaskell.com. dghaskell.com. Lots of links there for, for more uh, listening experiences.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. It's a great pleasure. I wish you many good sounds in this coming summer.